This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Are there more coyotes in your neighborhood and have they been attacking dogs and people? As of last week in Toronto, coyotes have attacked 10 dogs. Five of them have died, and that's more than the total for the entire previous year. Just yesterday, a Scarborough woman said a bold coyote nipped her pant leg off while she was gardening. And last week, we were all transfixed by the video of a coyote chasing a 10-year-old girl named Lily, who was saved by her tiny dog. Right there, that's where I stopped and I saw the coyote walking towards us. And I was like, oh no. So I ran, but my dog wasn't coming with me. So I dropped the leash and I ran all the way on the sidewalk and started screaming. Well, in some places it's even worse. 30 people have been bitten by coyotes in Vancouver, Stanley Park, and uh, uh, that's just in eight months, and another eight in suburban Calgary in the last month alone. Is it because there's more wildlife around since the pandemic started? And what can we do about it? I would like to hear from you, your experiences. Uh, what have you done? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Roger Dent, who is a senior trustee in Witchwood Park, Esther Attard, the director of Toronto Animal Services, and Leslie Sampson, the founding executive director of Coyote Watch Canada. Hello, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Thanks for having us. Hello. Let us begin with Roger, and I know that in your neighborhood, in our neighborhood, there have been emails going around for months and months regarding coyote sightings. Yes, uh, you know, we've been having a a growing coyote issue for for some time. You know, Witchwood Park is located uh, at Bathurst and St. Clair in Toronto, so we're in a, a very urban, very central part of the city. Uh, you know, we have a ravine space, but it's not connected to any of the major ravine systems. So we're actually a small, isolated urban environment. You know, we uh, have had animals for, for many, many years. We've had raccoons, we've had foxes, we've had, you know, all the usual uh, small urban animals. But our first coyotes uh, showed up uh, about four or five years ago. And uh, initially, uh, there was one coyote. Um, and uh, that coyote went on its way after uh, perhaps uh, being around for a month. But over the last few years, the numbers have increased, and uh, this year we actually had a a mating pair uh, spend uh, a month or two in the park, Uh, and so we had a a small pack of, uh, uh, by some reports, as many as five or six coyotes uh, living in our neighborhood which is, uh, you know, quite disconcerting. Uh, and any uh, bad things happen to pets? 
Well, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I had to remove uh, bits and pieces of two cats from our backyard. Oh, dear. Um, you know, a, a number of uh, missing cats uh, reported throughout the neighborhood. Uh, many, many postings on telephone poles uh, of, of mysterious uh, disappeared uh, cats. Um, you know, there are also uh, dogs that were threatened. Um, uh, about uh, two years ago, uh, during an evening walk, uh, an older dog on a leash uh, was being walked around the park and started being followed by a pair of coyotes uh, who were very bold and did not react to, you know, the, the, the walkers' protests. And the person had to go bang on the nearest door and uh, and take shelter inside the house. So, no no damage to the dog in that particular case, but uh, a very very threatening and aggressive situation. Esther Adard, uh, this week uh, we've seen video of a number of cases. We saw that dog being injured uh, just yesterday. A woman was attacked in her garden. Um, yes, we, the city is aware of um, those in- incidents, um, but they can all be explained because coyotes in those neighborhoods are being um, fed regularly um, by people, um, and so the behavior is changed due to all of that feeding. There have been photographers trying to take pictures of the pups that have been luring the coyotes with food regularly. Also in those neighborhoods, we found that there are a lot of issues with garbage overflowing, and those are all attractants for all wildlife, not just coyotes. And so that may um, explain why these things are happening in that neighborhood. Well, I, I, I'm, I can assure you that, that in Rogers' neighborhood, people are not feeding coyotes. Not in that neighborhood, perhaps, and I'm not familiar with everything that's going on in that neighborhood. Um, We have um, had reports of coyote sightings, a lot of sightings in that neighborhood. We haven't had reports of any um, attacks in that neighborhood as such. Um, dogs should be walked on leash. Often when they're not walked on leash, they're away from owners. And so that can, you know, mean that coyotes will approach um, if the dogs are away from their owners and coyotes are curious about what's going on. Also, a dog can be thought of um, as um, an interloper into their territory um, and they can be protecting if they have pups there. Um, There's different reasons why coyotes may react that way. Um, And again, making yourself big um, and noise and you know, throwing things to get them to leave rather than running away um, is the approach to ensure that they keep their distance from people. Leslie Sampson, would you say it's all because of uh, the extra food that's around? Uh, it, yes, that's kind of the beginning of how these situations evolve to where we are right now. Um, uh, you know, we can't speak to the location that the gentleman mentioned before, but I can assure you, you would be surprised in every community how people are providing those food resources, maybe not deliberately, but inadvertently, whether it's a bird feeder, feeding other little critters in the backyard, or not handling garbage appropriately. And without actually doing a site investigation, it would be pretty anecdotal to comment on that. But I guess the other thing too, Libby, what I want to point out is, if we look at coyotes as a blanket species across North America, 
you're looking at Stanley Park, you're looking at Calgary, each of those locations has um, precursors to reach a point where it's escalated, where there might be encounters with dogs or encounters with people. And I think we really have to look at the education, what's being done in terms of investigating to find out and identify and remove what those feeding attractants are. Because what we're doing essentially is training a coyote that it's okay for them to have close proximity to us because they're getting that food reward. It's cause and effect. We see it at a bird feeder. Animals come to the bird feeder to eat. And so people handing out a food resource to a coyote actually does impair their instinct to stay away from people. Roger, what are some of the solutions that uh, people in the neighborhood have been hoping for? Well, you know, the, the, the other two speakers... You know, the, the, the replies they've given, they're the usual replies that, that anyone with a coyote problem hears from government officials. It's basically, there's nothing much you can do. It's your fault. Uh, the coyotes uh, are just something you're going to have to live with. I mean, the reality of, of the food source uh, uh, comment, there will always be sources of food in cities for coyotes. There will always be garbage. There will always be bird feeders. There will always be small rodents that they are interested in. So if, if, if the advice is to stop food sources, that advice is not helpful to people with coyote problems. I, I really put the, the, the blame here uh, on the Ontario uh, policy uh, that Doug Ford is responsible for uh, that, that only allows trap and release within one kilometer. So if you have a coyote in Witchwood Park in Toronto, at Bathurst and St. Clair, if you uh, obey the rules and you wish to trap it, you must release it within 24 hours within one kilometer, which basically means, you know, maybe we could release it at Queen's Park or City Hall, but, <laughs> you know, we can't release it anywhere that it is not, you know, it's just going to come right back. So it means you can't release it uh, and trap it. In any uh, uh, in any useful function, so your only remaining uh, solutions are to live with it or to uh, take an illegal step. So you know what I think needs to happen here is that the province uh, and the city needs to lobby the province to change the trap and release rules to allow further distancing. And I think there should also be uh, uh, a, 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 a a policy of trying to trap and neuter uh, or or uh, spay uh, coyotes. So at least we don't have a problem that continues to grow. Um, Esther, what do you say to uh, Roger's comments? Um, I would say that it's a very difficult thing to start to interfere with wildlife that way um, because then you will get other issues that you didn't think about if you're trying to um, work with wildlife in that way. The MNRF does have the um, legislation to say you can't relocate them more than a kilometer, and I agree relocating a coyote more than a kilometer, they're going, you know, no more than a kilometer, they are going to come back. Um, but the reasons that we don't relocate more than that is because of disease. You will spread disease. You don't know what these animals have and could cause um, further, you know, major impacts down the road if you um, were to do that. Removing coyotes and relocating them doesn't work. Uh, it, it, 
it, you know, is inhumane, actually. If you um, have a coyote that's causing a problem um, and it needs to be trapped, it is usually humanely euthanized um, so that it um, doesn't cause issue elsewhere um, or, um, you know, have a horrible life because it has to get used to another area and they are used to being with their family and that um, kind of thing. So, and then the comment about, you know, not feeding People should be responsible to look after their properties and ensure that there aren't resources for wild animals to get into. I don't think. Yeah, that you know, is if the city if the city garbage cans worked better than some of our city officials claim, that would be that would be a good thing too. Because uh, I can yes. tell you for certain, you know, we follow city rules, we compost like good people, and uh, you know what, uh, the smart animals can get into it often enough. I'm, I'm going to take a call from uh, Marissa Lennox, who is one of our hosts here at Zoomer Media, and I was really surprised by what she had to tell me this morning about her experience. Hi, Marissa. Marissa, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Hi, Libby. Hi. So uh, tell us about your experience. Okay, so this was um, not too long ago. There were two coyotes in my backyard that were sleeping. And so I have two little kids, and so I got a little bit nervous, and I called the Humane Society, and they were unwilling to do anything. They just told me um, simply that the coyotes were there first, and they wouldn't do anything about it. So I wasn't sure what to do with that information, but they, they make me a little bit nervous, particularly around kids. Now, I once had a cat that did go missing. We've got tons of coyotes uh, out here in Oakville, which is where I live. And I'm sure um, my one outdoor cat went missing. And I remember calling again the Humane Society then, and that's when she told me that Oakville has a bylaw that you're not allowed to let pets outdoors. Um, and I think it's because of the what? coyote problem. Uh, you're not allowed to let pets outdoors, what, on, on their own, you mean? Yeah, or? on their own, without, without a leash. Without a leash, well... Yeah. And so how do you feel? I mean, uh, like you said, you've got two little kids. Well, not great. <laughs> it certainly doesn't make me feel safe. I wouldn't want to go into my backyard with two coyotes back there with, with my kids. So you're forced to stay inside then. Yeah. Um, and what would you like to see happen? You know, I don't know. I mean, I've been listening to your discussion. I don't know that I've ever necessarily heard um, or considered what to do with the coyotes it is interesting to hear that if you are to catch, if you were to catch them and move them elsewhere, that they would come back. My initial instinct is to to take them away. That would be my initial instinct: is to put them in a cage and take them to a different location, one that isn't so densely populated with residential homes. Hmm. Uh, I read something uh, interesting, uh, and I want to throw this over to Leslie. Marissa, thanks so much for calling in. Thanks, Libby. Bye. Um, about something they're doing in Edmonton, I think, and it's like they're shooting them with paintball um, uh, and to make them scared, they're calling it hazing. I mean, I don't know, Leslie, what do you think about this uh, project of hazing the coyotes? So actually, that's what we do do is use aversion conditioning. It's a, a lot more um, complex and there's extensive assessment that's done on each situation, looking at, again, the attractants and who these individual coyotes are. Um, that kind of distant uh, 
method of harassing a coyote, the messaging is not very clear. We actually do very up-close aversion conditioning with animals that might have previously been fed. And so there's an opportunity there to reinvigorate their natural instincts to stay away from people. And so... I, unfortunately, I didn't have, I couldn't hear Roger's comments before because there was some problems with my phone. So I, I can't even really mention anything that he said. But um, he yeah, wants to what, move the coyotes more yeah, than a kilometer, and, and that's a natural. That is a natural uh, response that many folks have. But again, I think Esther covered that pretty well. The other thing too, you move coyotes out, others will take their place. If you look at Chicago, they have over 2,000 coyotes in their city. They have done very well like all other urban species. The issue then becomes the feeding. That is always the number one step into it. And, you know, maybe Roger's neighborhood is perfectly clean, but it could be a neighborhood down the way that is providing food that's giving the message to that particular coyote or coyote family that it's okay for them to be living there. And basically, though, with a coyote family, they mate for life. And so let's say you have six pups. 60 to 70% of those animals are going to die within the first year from natural causes, motor vehicle, or, you know, some other uh, reason. But then once they're becoming adults, they're going to be dispersing and finding their own place. And some coyotes can go as far as 100 kilometers away on their own. (laughs) But the Ministry of Natural Resources specifically has those regulations in place because there is a lot of um, people that do trap and remove animals, whether it's a coyote or a, a fox or a raccoon, and it's just they, they don't survive, the smaller mesopredators. Coyotes are naturally dispersing animals, and they will move on their own. But if there's a huge food source there that's not natural, then, again, we're back to square one, that the food incentive and the resources are there, so they're going to be probably remaining in the home range longer than they naturally would. Roger, has the problem become worse during the pandemic? And I've also noticed uh, a lot more rabbits around, and I guess the rabbits are, uh, you know, a food source. Well, I think the problem has become a lot worse in 2021. I'm not sure if I would blame the pandemic uh, the one effect of the pandemic in this neighborhood is it has made the streets much more crowded with people. Yep. Uh, so if anything, I think the pandemic would have made the environment less welcoming to the coyotes. I, I think we've got a, a secular growth in the number of urban coyotes that's been going on for some time. And I think we are now, uh, you know, seeing the effects of our lack of, of an ability to deal with this problem in past years. Uh, the coyotes are getting more numerous, they're getting more aggressive, they are learning uh, not to be afraid, and I think this problem is going to get uh, worse. Uh, and I think we're going to have uh, attacks on people. Uh, we've seen it in, in Vancouver and Stanley Park. Uh, you know, we saw the video this week of a leashed dog being hunted uh, quite aggressively by a coyote. Um, Macy's on the road to recovery, by the way. I I think the problem is only going to get worse. Uh, The current government policies are not working. Okay, let's hear from Linda in Scarborough. Hi, Linda. 
Hi, Libby. I just wanted to let you know that um, my sister and I were walking in Pine Hills Crescent the other day, or Pine Hills Cemetery, and it's um, St. Clair Avenue, and it stretches from Warden to Kennedy Road. And um, we saw this uh, fellow who was sitting in his car, and he told us that um, he was an exterminator, and he was keeping his eye on a young deer who had come out of her, I guess, her environment closer down to the ravine area, and she was um, on the area where the, you know, gravestones and everything are, and he was saying that she's nervous to go back into that area because there was a family of coyotes, and as we walked along, we saw the family of coyotes and decided that we didn't feel safe and uh, left uh, that area. Okay, uh, Pat in Mississauga. Oh, hi. Hi. I just wanted hi. I just wanted to make a comment about the cats. I'm a cat owner and lover, and I would never let my cat wander the neighborhood knowing that there's a threat of coyotes in the area. I mean, that's to me, that's a food source that you're giving them. Well, I think it's yeah. I think it's irresponsible to let your cat wander the neighborhood anyway. Well, yeah, but, you know, people had outdoor cats uh, for a very long time. I know. I just don't agree with outdoor cats. I think there's just too many things. They can get hit by a car. They can get uh, killed by a coyote or even another dog. I just think people should be more responsible and keep their cats in. Okay, Pat, thanks for that. Thank you. Um, Esther, so, I mean, uh, again, you know, people who, who feel threatened by this basically are, are told by city, uh, the coyotes were here first, or it's your fault, what, and, and they're not happy with that. What do you say to that? So I don't think, um, you know, it's, it's fair to say the coyotes were here first. We all have to learn to live together. Um, it doesn't matter who's here first or second, we're all here. Um, and there is no blame. We're just trying to educate and help people to live in the neighborhoods where they live. People love green space, and wildlife lives there too. And it's just about us learning about how we can coexist with them. Um, where I live, I have coyotes in my neighborhood. My small dog that I have does not go out on his own. We go out in our yard with him all the time. Um, we have not had an, in, uh, an issue. We had a rabbit try to live under our deck, and we got a one-way gate so that they would get out of, from under our deck, and then we closed it off. And so there are things that you have to do proactively or in response to different things that change in your neighborhood or your environment. And, I, you know, we don't know exact numbers of animals that are in our neighborhoods, but we do know that the population of people is increasing. The number of houses are increasing. So that's often, you know, again, another cause for conflict um, because things are changing all the time. And so animals will adapt and we have to adapt. And, you know, the best way forward is to be educated and know what you need to do to keep yourself um, safe and, and why to do you enjoy think, your neighborhood. Why do you think that there's been an increase? Do you think it's because of the pandemic? 
I don't know that there's been an increase. And I would say that in the, what happened in the pandemic when we were all told to stay home, there weren't people on the streets. And so I think that... Um, there were people animals, on our streets. <laughs> Go well, ahead. not when we had the stay-at-home order and not initially. So there were a lot of neighborhoods where streets were empty. Um, and so then, you know, um, wildlife can move further. And, and so maybe that's, you know, an issue that happened and now something that we have to um, counteract and respond to. Um, you know, I do think that we saw lots of um, uh, things on the media about, you know, goats coming in from um, into cities from outside in the in the suburban areas and where they'd never been before because there were no people on the streets. Everybody was at home. So, you know, there are those issues that have, you know, changed. Animals adapt and respond to their environment. So when those things change, they change. And so we have to have ways to respond and be educated and know how to respond and what to do so that we can enjoy our neighbourhoods and um, be safe. Uh, Roger, uh, your response and what would you like to see happen from the city? By the way, I uh, I just saw something uh, quoting the mayor, and I will ask him about it next time I talk to him, saying he is now fully engaged in this issue. Yeah. Well, I, I just don't think this is a very satisfactory answer. I mean, telling us to, you know, just to, 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 to get along with things, you know, when you see people walking their dogs on a suburban street being hunted by a coyote it's it's telling people just to get used to dealing with that is is just not a, an answer that's very satisfactory so i i think we need to re-examine uh, all of the rules and policies and uh, we need a change from the status quo the status quo is not working leslie sampson i'm going to give you the last word leslie Yes, thank you so much for having me today, by the way. So, you know, and I, I understand Roger's frustration. However, regardless of policy change, which really the City of Toronto has one of the pr- most progressive animal policies, whether it's wild or domesticated in North America, there still has to be education and awareness on behalf of residents. We heard from many folks in the area where uh, Macy and Lily live. They talk about people coming in, dumping garbage from other areas at their bins. That's being addressed. The garbage pickup is ramped up in these areas. But also, you know, coyotes are one of the many risks that our pets face. Small dogs or cats are at risk of being predated upon by birds of prey. They can get hit by a car, like the guests before mentioned. There's also poisons, and people do harm domestic animals that come onto their property. So I think moving forward, Roger made some good points, but this is a community effort, and you cannot cleanse a community of wildlife species that you might not necessarily care about and maybe hate or even be fearful about. There's a plethora of wildlife, Pine Hill Park, There's a deer population that's been living there for many years in coexistence with this coyote family. So oftentimes people are looking at wildlife behavior. They're not understanding what is happening in the ecosystem. And I think we just really have to be careful what kind of narrative we're putting out through the media. Okay, well, uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot more on this. In the meantime, thank you so much, Esther Attard, Roger Dent, and Leslie Sampson. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Libby. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.
We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, just when we thought the whole COVID crisis was dying down, well, it's gearing up again, certainly in other places. We will have that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just when we were starting to believe that the COVID crisis is almost over, we're seeing new and worrying developments. We have only to look at other countries with high vaccination rates to see devastating new waves of infection fueled by the Delta variant spreading through the unvaccinated population. And just yesterday, the Centers for Disease Control reversed its guidance for many fully vaccinated people saying they should resume wearing masks depending on their location. Now, we've already been told that in order to avoid this, 90% of us must get the jab. And a lot of people wonder if that's realistic, given that, as the prime minister said, we've got plenty of vaccines now and anybody who wants one and who is eligible can get one. So also, despite the fact that we've been told that mixing vaccines is safe and perhaps even better, some countries don't accept that. And now Quebec is offering third shots to people who want to travel at their own risk, of course. Is that a good idea? Let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 4740. Let us begin with that question. I go to Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalolana School of Public Health at the U of T, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, an infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. Oh, where is Dr. Jha? <laughs> he was there a minute ago. I'm sure uh, we will get him back. Hi, Dr. Vaisman. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. You are one of our stalwarts, and we appreciate it very much. No problem. Uh, so what do you think about this thing in Quebec saying, hey, if you want a third shot, come and get it, but uh, it's up to you? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, place we are at now. When you think about six months ago or even you know four months ago where we were with vaccine shortage, uh, trying to you know give it out carefully to those who are at highest risk, now we've come all the way to the other end of the spectrum where they're giving out third doses to people who simply want to travel. So, you know, when you're looking at vaccines, we need to ask the two questions of safety and efficacy. From the safety perspective, there's no issue. From the efficacy point of view, it's, it's not necessary to give additional doses. So it's just purely for the fact that there's administrative reasons in other countries that prevent people from traveling. So there's certainly no risk from the medical side, but it's... Are, just, are you sure about that, that there's no risk for a third dose? Has that ever been tested? I, it's true that we, it's never been tested, but there isn't any reason at this point to believe there should be. Um, in terms of short-term side effects, we know that people who have two doses don't have, have uh, anything that's significant that requires um, hospitalization associated with mRNA vaccines. Of course, we know about the AstraZeneca and the association with uh, thrombosis, but... These extra doses would be likely to be mRNA vaccines that, um, you know, wouldn't be associated with that kind of side effect. So there isn't any strong reason to believe that we'd have a, a long-term side effects associated with third doses. 
especially because there's also plans to provide their doses for the most vulnerable people, the immunocompromised individuals, in order to boost their immunity. So at this point, there isn't a lot of reason to believe that. Uh, Dr. Ja, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Happy to. Uh, so is, is it a good idea? Quebec is offering third doses just for people who uh, want to travel. Is that a good idea? Well, it's not the biggest priority, as your uh, fellow panelists just said, that it's really forced by the necessity of inconsistent guidelines. Uh, I think the evidence is very clear that if you've had two vaccines, uh, including a mix of an AstraZeneca and one of the mRNAs, now, there aren't randomized trials that show that that combination works. It's actually increasingly harder to do randomized trials just because so many people are now vaccinated, which is good. But there are careful studies that look at what we call neutralizing antibodies, meaning does the body mount a vigorous immune response if you've had a mix? And a recent report out of England suggested that it does. So I think what we need here is some guidelines from the World Health Organization, CDC, Health Canada, the European regulators need to talk and agree that what would be the standards for which vaccines are accepted for travel. And I think it's perfectly safe uh, if you travel with a mix of a vaccines. Uh, Quebec is doing this for uh, I'm not sure what reasons. Now, the other part of it, I think we have to be clear that there is plentiful vaccines in Canada, but there's a dire shortage of vaccines in the world, particularly in the places that are generating the variants that threaten us, places like India or South Africa or Brazil. Uh, Those variants are global threats. So we really should be thinking about a global solution. Now, in that context, a third dose, except for immunocompromised people, really is a low-risk priority. And uh, I certainly wouldn't hope that would be what occupies the attention of the politicians and the and the public health leaders. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, I mean, we've been reading for a while that we may all need a third dose, a booster shot, though not clear when that would be needed. Uh, and and again, is is taking one, you know, so close to the second dose, is, is that a good idea? Right. So if we do end up needing to have a third booster, then certainly um, it should be done at a time that's optimal to promote long-term immunity. So similar to discussion earlier in the year about when the first two doses should be provided, the similar kind of reasoning applies here, that the longer you wait with the third dose, presumably the uh, durability of the boost that you get is longer-lasting. So um, these, we don't know the answer to the question of whether getting a third dose so quickly will lead to that same effect. So it's it's too early to tell. Also, we don't know what the timing of the third dose might be for the rest of the population. That data will be available, you know, later this year when we see the effect of mass vaccination in countries like Israel, if we see waning immunity in those individuals that did it first. So it's, it's very early to tell. And and you were referring to third doses for immunocompromised people. Is 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 that really in the planning stages, or is that just another thing people are sort of thinking about? In Canada, it's uh, it's still in the planning stages, but in other countries, it's already being offered. So it's something that uh, will be probably more uh, rolled out in the next little while when we see here the experience with people who are immunocompromised to see what, what kind of effects the vaccines have had uh, you know, in Canada and the United States. So it's something that is likely to occur in the near future, given that we already know 
that the effect of double vaccinated individuals is not as strong as those who are immunocompetent. Okay, let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. We've been talking about Quebec, uh, you know, offering third doses to people who want to travel and maybe they want to book a cruise where mixed doses aren't expect, accepted or go to a country where it's not accepted. And uh, Dr. Ja, uh, you know, we have been seeing a resurgence with the Delta variant mm-hmm. and we've seen revised guidance in the United States uh, where vaccines are plentiful um, and where there is, you know, a, a I don't. I don't know if you'd call it a good rate of vaccination, but there are also a lot of unvaccinated people. Does that worry you? It does worry uh, me, and I think the biggest threat to Canada, in fact, is unvaccinated Americans uh, that would travel uh, or have uh, be uh, potentially contributing to transmission and ongoing transmission of the particularly the Delta variant in the U.S. But the really important message here is. Almost all of the evidence shows that if you've got two of the vaccines, either two of the Pfizer or the AstraZeneca or one of the Johnson Johnson, then mostly they have reasonably good protection against the Delta. Uh, Two is certainly better than one uh, in terms of doses. But uh, the uh, important part is we really need to make sure that there's double coverage where two doses are needed in as wide a population as possible. That's where the U.S. is falling behind. You know, they started off ahead of Canada, um, but we caught up on the first dose, and now we're catching up on the second dose coverage. Uh, And this is a concern um, because it's the closest place where there's a variant factory uh, to us. But there are others. We should be concerned about future variants coming out of Brazil or out of India or other places where community transmission is still quite high. That's what worries me. Okay, we have got to take a break. Let me give the numbers out. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. We're talking about the latest outbreaks in other countries. Uh, Wondering, is, is that what we're headed for unless we get more people vaccinated. Uh, We've been told we need to get to 90%. Meantime, Quebec is saying you can get a third jab to make sure you can travel. People, are you thinking about traveling? And if are you wondering if you have the right vaccination in order to travel? And every day there's something new. Just before we went to air, we heard that Britain will start accepting fully vaccinated travelers from the States and most EU countries, but not from Canada. Want to know what you think about all of those things? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the latest COVID news. Some of it is regarding travel. Quebec is offering third doses to people who have taken mixed doses and who want to travel to places where that is not accepted. 
I would say probably not accepted yet. I suspect everyone will pivot. Just before we went to air, we heard that uh, the UK will start accepting fully vaccinated travelers from the US and the EU without quarantine, but not travelers from Canada, even though, frankly, our numbers look a lot better than theirs. Let's go to Bridget in Toronto. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. First time caller, by the way. Oh, wait. I listen to you every day. There you go. Welcome. (laughs) So my question is, um, turning it around a little bit, I'm wondering uh, when we start letting Americans in, what kind of proof will they um, be asking for at the border? What will it look like? Will it be a government-sanctioned document or how will we know for sure that they've had their vaccine? Uh, that's a good question. I don't think they have a standard vaccine passport, but uh, they have some proof, just like right now. Uh, even we have some proof, even though it, it's, it no, doesn't I look know. that serious. So I, I can't answer that question. And we've just heard from our guests uh, saying that they are worried about travelers from the United States. Exactly. Where a variant so how, is how will we really know? So we're about to let them all in, which I understand they want to get here and we want to see them, you know, tourism, you know, all that kind of thing. But I really wonder, you know, and throw in that that like. the border guards might strike. So, oh really? They're, they're, they have a strike deadline that is uh, within a few days of uh, the uh, opening of the border to vaccinated Americans. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Okay, interesting. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Bridget. Bye bye. Yeah, all of that stuff is happening. And and Dr. Vaisman, you know, speaking of of Israel, I just read that they have reopened their closed COVID wards and they're having around 2,000 cases a day. Yes, the situation in Israel is still showing a trend towards increase in COVID cases. Um, So they have a higher vaccination rate than Canada in terms of the doubly vaccinated, but Canada's fast approaching But the other interesting example is the UK, where uh, about a week ago they peaked in the number of cases they had, and they also similar in terms of the double vaccination rates. Um, So what's interesting is that they've already peaked and come down despite no specific restrictions that ever were introduced. In fact, only a lifting of restrictions over the last few weeks. Um, And even today, there's the data looking at some states, the United States, where also where we see rising of Delta cases, but there seems to be a, a peak right now in today's places like Florida, Tennessee. So it's interesting that uh, we've seen this bump and it's very worrisome. It's very early, maybe a little bit too early to tell, but this is maybe a sign of, of how well the vaccines are working, that there is a certain surge that you'll see in, in cases, but that it may come down afterwards. It's, it's too early to tell with the UK, but it's very reassuring so far. Uh, do you think that the same thing is bound to happen here? Well, I think the key things to recognize is that there inevitably will be a surge in COVID cases in Canada. It's a question of how much and when, when exactly it will be. seems to me that it will be likely in September and October when schools open. But the key aspect is that if you, if you look at the UK experience with this recent rise, they actually had a very small number of deaths as compared to the previous waves. And that is a key thing to recognize what's going to happen in Canada, is that it's very unlikely to re lead to a large number of deaths or hospitalizations, and that's the most important aspect out of all of this. Do you agree with that, Dr. Zha? Oh, I'm living proof of what Dr. Vassman said, that I've, um, I got two doses of Pfizer uh, early on, uh, up in February, because I'm a healthcare worker, and 
but for my essential work, I had to travel to Sierra Leone to do COVID work there. And on the May trip, I got infected with a variant and had absolutely no symptoms. Wow. Now, uh, if if you look at the maths, for example, what's described in Israel, well, for someone of my age and health status, I would have had a 1.5% chance of either being hospitalized or dropping dead. What the vaccine did is drop that down to 0.1%. And I certainly chose that. I'd prefer not to be dead. So uh, this is the key thing, that the vaccines do not necessarily stop acquisition they probably decrease the transmission to others but they don't necessarily um, mean you get 100 percent protection against infection but you get close to 100 percent protection against hospitalization and death and that ultimately should be the key goal of our vaccination strategies it won't be to focus on cases it would be to make sure that our health system absolutely has the minimal burden so, uh, yeah, I'm living proof that vaccines save lives. Well, we heard this morning from Dr. Lowe, and we heard yesterday, I think it was the Prime Minister, that basically all the current cases of people who are hospitalized are people who are unvaccinated. Yeah. And obviously, I'm talking to a pair of doctors, and you are focused on health and hospitalization. But, you know, there's a growing concern of people who want to keep reopening the economy that this will prevent us from doing that, Dr. Vaseman. Yeah, I think, I think when you're you're looking at why we had lockdowns in the first place, the main goal of it was to prevent uh, overwhelming death, hospitalization, morbidity. In the absence of that or significant reduction in that, I think fewer and fewer Canadians would accept and public health officials also accept the significant prices associated with lockdowns, you know, if those side effects are not there, if those severe consequences are not present. So, we, you know, the UK will be living proof for us. We'll see what happens in Israel as well. We'll see how those two stories end up. But when we decide to start opening further in September and, you know, lifting things, we will have that to our advantage, a little bit of time to see what happens there. If we see that in those countries that cases continue to drop without any rise in hospitalizations and deaths, then I think it's, it's much of the proof that we need that, you know, those kinds of restrictions are, are perhaps will never be necessary again as long as, as Dr. Jai mentioned, that we don't have those um, variants arise that are escaping the vaccination. So I, I think we'll have only very soon we'll have an answer to that question. And uh, Dr. Ja, every day, practically on the hour, I keep reading about another jurisdiction that is saying mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers, full stop. But we we still, well, we the government seems to be totally resisting that still. That's just uh, absolutely irresponsible. You you can't get a a job as a healthcare worker if uh, you uh, don't have vaccines against you know things like mumps, measles, rubella, and basic other things. So why is COVID any different? Uh, so absolutely, they should be mandatory. I believe they should be mandatory at various levels. Uh, I think, for example, in schools and universities, they probably should be mandatory or make uh, people get tested regularly. Uh, when something is offered that's cheap, safe, and effective, I really see very little arguments on the personal liberty front to say, no, I'm not going to get vaccinated because, precisely your statistic, the unvaccinated epidemic is what's ahead.
And that's what we should be worried about. That puts everyone at risk. It puts our health system at risk. Dr. Vaisman, UHN instituted this testing policy for unvaccinated healthcare workers. Uh, do you have a sense of how it's working out? And, and uh, just for a little clarity, it says you need a positive test before, uh, uh, sorry, a negative test, obviously, before a shift. Is that before every shift? I know it'll be done periodically, um, like throughout once a week, for example. Um, so that'll be coupled with a screening that we do at the door for all our patients and staff. And it'll be rolled out in approximately one week. Um, currently, there's the kind of implementation phase going on now, and then the official start will be in about a week from now. And these kinds of policies, you know, one thing is um, obviously to keep patients and staff safe from not introducing COVID. But I think the more important underlying goal for this is to push vaccination up is so that this inconvenience associated with testing will kind of push people towards vaccination. Um, and if you know there is a mandate that comes from above us, from the province, say, to, to have mandatory vaccination, then we wouldn't need such an intervention. But it's kind of like an intermediary step. And hopefully, you know, it bumps up our vaccination rates even higher. Uh, yeah, Dr. Ja, what do you think about those uh, interventions? Because it, it is a pain to uh, have to take tests all the time. I think we're being too Canadian and too nice on such an obvious thing. Vaccine hey, I agree with you. Vaccines should be mandatory. I mean, we've, in our national study, the ABC study, we've looked at vaccine hesitancy, and it's better than the U.S. So about 9% of Canadians say no way, and that's mostly in the young um, and in certain provinces. But that 9%, if you these are adults, so if you pair that if mixing with kids, we might still be kind of engines of transmission, especially school kids, then you still have the potential for either outbreaks or focal outbreaks and disruption. So in that context, I just think it's a no-brainer that vaccines should be mandatory for all critical, uh, basically, frontline staffs. I would include healthcare workers. It would include, for example, transport staff, uh, you know, bus drivers and uh, people who are working at the airport, so forth. And those are essential to keep the economy moving. So I, I just think it's essential that we not dance around the issues. I'm sure it would say, well, would this be ch- challenged under the charter and so forth? But we have pretty good precedents uh, that the charter does respect uh, public health ordinances that uh, are in the greater interest. So uh, we, we really have to avoid this terrible debate that's happening in the U.S. that somehow liberty is equated with being unvaccinated, where I think it's more stupidity is equated with being unvaccinated. Uh, here, here, here. You, you said it um, like it is. Uh, that's that's what I would say. That's okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's it to me, it is uh, incomprehensible. And I think that people if if their businesses suffer or whatever it is, uh, because, uh, because of people who refuse to get the jab, I think that uh, there will be, uh, there will be uh, resentment. And at the end of the day, the politicians will pay for that. We're uh, just about out of time. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, what would you like to leave us with? I think uh, even the experience in other countries is now telling us how positive things and how optimistic things are going to be in Canada over the next few months, is that despite rising cases in places around the world with vaccination, still it's reassuring to see how few deaths and how few hospitalizations there are. So it's a very optimistic time for Canada in the next few months. And Dr. Ja? 
Nothing more to add. Thank you. Okay. And uh, thank you very much, Dr. Prabhat Jha, Dr. Alon Vaisman, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.